welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. If you want to win a marathon, you don't throw on a 50-pound backpack first. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts a new series from Hebrews 12 called Unshakable Kingdom with this sermon entitled Look and Consider, which covers Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Our scripture reading today is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. I told him in the first service I want to record his voice for my Bible reading app. That was, uh, <laughs> that was awesome. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Gracious God, reveal your holy, eternal word to us and introduce us to the knowledge of your will. Where we have erred, correct us, Where we are wounded, heal us. Where we are needy, fill us. Good shepherd, lead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'll tell you a story that leads us into our text. It was about this time of year, August of 1992. I was getting ready to go into my eighth grade year and I was was going out for football. Now I grew up in a football crazed home My dad had played football at the University of Alabama in the 70s, and I was raised to love football, but my dad had raised me in the same way that his dad had raised him, and that is that you don't play football until you're in eighth grade. So I didn't play any of the, uh, you know, peewee leagues or anything like that. It was middle school, I had to wait till eighth grade. So I'm excited, I'm I'm anxious, I'm ready to, to, to hit the ground running, but I didn't know what to expect. But I know this, I know that I didn't expect what came on that first day of practice. What, what happened, what transpired on that first day of practice has traumatized me for the rest of my life. <laughs> we make our way up to the practice field and the very first thing that the coaches have us do is this wonderful thing called the Oklahoma drill. Now, for those of you that played football back in the day, you might know what that is. If you don't know what it is, I'll sum it up for you. It was a drill created, presumably in Oklahoma, by sadistic men who wanted to hurt little boys. (laughs) It's one of these things, you know, where it's just men trying to figure out who's tough, right? And so they line kids up across from each other and supposedly blocking is happening, but really what happens is two guys run from about 15 yards apart from each other and hit each other as hard as they can at full speed and just see who survives, (laughs) who who doesn't get up with a concussion. And, So I'm watching this happen and I realize I start asking some very um, life-altering questions 
do I have what it takes? Am I going to die? Um, is this going to hurt? The answer is yes. Do I have what it takes to make it? Am I cut out for this? Now, it reminds me of when my son tried out for eighth grade football as well. And after a couple of practices, I said, you know, how's it going? Do you like it? And he said, um, it hurts. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's part of football. And he said, I remember him saying, I thought the pads would make it not hurt. I said, no, 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 the pads make it not hurt as bad as it could hurt, but it hurts. And I experienced that on that day. There was a lot of pain that first day, a lot of pain. Now, it's a silly illustration, but I think it leads us into a question that's more significant and that matters, and that's this. In a similar way, as I stood on that practice field that day, uh, and I began to experience fear and trepidation, and I watched knowing my name was about to be called and wondering if I had what it takes, I think there's many of us who have come into the Christian faith and have begun asking some similar questions. This is harder than what I thought it would be. Do I have what it takes? The struggle is more significant than I thought it would be. Can I endure? This is a lot more painful than I thought it would be. Am I tough enough? For many of us, the Christian life, if you're in the faith, has not turned out the way that you expected. It's been a lot more difficult the fight has been much more dramatic than you thought. And you're asking, and have found yourself asking, some significant questions. You're tired, you're weary, you're beat up. For some of you, sin is eating your lunch. Circumstances of life have brought you down to your knees. And you're wondering if you have what it takes. This chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, in the first three verses that we're going to look at today, it, it opens with a really powerful, vivid, captivating picture. And it's this picture, as you just heard read, and we'll look at it here again in just a moment. It's this picture that the author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever the author is, gives us this picture at the beginning of this chapter of, of this great cloud of witnesses who in some mysterious way, we don't know exactly, can they see everything that's happening here? I, I don't know. But in some way, at least from the Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, they're, they're able to be witnesses in a sense, to encourage us. And if they could, if, they, if we could hear what they were saying, uh, they would be cheering us on. One of my, my oldest daughter, my oldest and my youngest daughters are cheerleaders. My oldest daughter is a varsity cheerleader um, in going into her junior year. And, so she's on the sidelines. So yesterday we sat for uh, a couple of hours on the face of the sun watching her cheer at a football scrimmage because we love her so much that we're willing to sweat 20 pounds out just to watch her cheer in a game that doesn't matter. <laughs> and I've watched her over the years and there is so much work. People don't realize how much work is put into being a cheerleader, at least at the school that she cheers at. She told me recently that there are 63 cheers that she has to memorize. And the coach will just drill them on it in practice. Where the coach will say, uh, uh, just to call out the cheer, the title of the cheer, and you have to immediately go into it, be able to say it and cheer it and, you know, verbally, but then also all the motions that go with it. And it's incredibly intense and a little bit terrifying. 
And I don't really understand why they have to learn 63 because when we watch them on game days, they do the same five over and over and over again. <laughs> and out of those five, there's one that they do the most. And so I asked her recently, I was like, can you just learn those five and really know that one? And I don't know, the coach wants us to know 63. Anyway, it's beside the point. Here's the point. If the witnesses who have gone before us, these people who have walked this struggle of life following God, they've been in the fight, they've been in the battle, they've asked those questions when they were on this side of heaven. When, when they were in our shoes, so to speak, they were struggling as well at, at a certain level. And now they're there. Now they've received the award. Now they're in the glory of Jesus. And what is it that they're saying? Well, they're cheering us on and if they have one cheer, if they have one encouragement, that if we could hear them, it would be this. It's worth it. Cling to Jesus, hold fast to Jesus, look to Jesus, keep going, persevere, endure through the power of Jesus within you because I'm telling you, I remember feeling like, is it worth it? But now I'm here and I'm gonna tell you it's worth it and more specifically, he's worth it. Keep going. Don't stop, it's worth it. I want us to walk through these three verses. Now, as we progress through this chapter over the next few weeks, I wish I could take just three verses at a time, and I, and I could have scheduled it that way, but we're gonna take bigger chunks, chunks in the coming weeks. But this week, these three verses, we're gonna sit in them. We're gonna, we're gonna walk slowly through each phrase that's in these verses because there's so much here. One of the things that we're going to see just in these three verses is that there are five Greek words in the original language that this was written in. There are five Greek words that this is the only place, these three verses, this passage is the only place in the New Testament that you'll find them. It's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, look, I want to encourage you in a very unique and specific way, follower of Jesus such that you're not gonna find this anywhere else in the Bible, at least in the way that I'm gonna word it. Thematically, yes, you'll find this all over scripture. But I'm gonna use some phrases and some words that I want to stand out to you because I don't want you to miss it. And so let's walk through it again. I'm gonna read it again. I know we've already had it read for us, but just because it's short, I'm gonna read it again so that we can sit in it all the more. Hebrews 12, verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Three imperatives in these three verses, three commands that we need to consider significantly. The first one is this, throw off sin. Throw off sin. This is, this is the main action of verse one. But let's, let's walk through it in the sense of this. Let's start with that very first word. If you've known uh, Bible reading for any length of time, if you've been trained and Inductive, inductive Bible study methods, then you've heard this before, and that's this. 
When you see a therefore in scripture, ask what is the therefore therefore? That's the classic question. What's it connecting to? What is being said that he's now saying, look, in light of that, this. And what he's connecting to, whoever this author is, is connecting to everything he's just said in chapter 11. You might have heard chapter 11 of Hebrews referred to as the hall of fame of faith, where this author recounts some of the people who have been um, faithful during their lifetimes to walk with the Lord and walk in the promises of the Lord. Now, here's the interesting part. As you read through Hebrews chapter 11, it becomes clear pretty quickly that these people, yes, are um, lifted up for their faith, but they were at many times in their life not very faithful. They struggled greatly. They were broken. In fact, some of these people that he highlights in here, you go, how did they end up in the hall of fame of faith? They really screw some things up. They made some horrible choices. They made some incredibly horrible, sinful choices. But yet, they're in this chapter, Hebrews 11. As if the Lord is saying to us and reminding us, these are the type of people I use. People just like you and me. People who are fighting and struggling or in the battle, asking the hard questions. Do I have what it takes? I messed this up. I didn't do it right. And he says, yes. But even in the midst of your faithlessness, I am faithful. And I use people like you to show that faith isn't about you, but it's about the faithfulness of God. The one who redeems and renews all things. And so he talks about people like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, the prostitute. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. These are the ones he names, and then he goes on and says, there's a, there's a host of others that I don't have time to mention, but they endured great, great hardship. He says some crazy things towards the end of the chapter. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And then he says this in verse 39 of chapter 11. He says, in all these, every single one that he just mentioned, he says, in all these, though commended through their faith, not one of them, not one of them received what was promised. Meaning they went to the grave having not received the full promise that they knew was coming according to the Lord's plan for his people. And so if they were looking to be fully satisfied in this life, they were disappointed. But yet, these are people now who, in this first verse of chapter 12, he says, but therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these people who are now in glory with the risen king saying, it didn't come to fruition there in the sense of everything that I longed for this life to be didn't happen, but it was worth it because I'm, I'm experiencing the reward now. Keep going. The first Greek word, I mentioned there's five Greek words that are used in this passage that aren't used anywhere else in the New Testament, the very first one is that word cloud. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's, it's this word that wants us to picture uh, this dense multitude, this throng of people who are coming around us and cheering us on. It's, it's in a sense like, in a much more grand, wonderful way, those older players on that team 
who came around me at the end of that practice and probably saw the fear in my eyes and put their arms around me and said, hey, it'll get better. It's, it's not always gonna be like this. You're gonna make it. <laughs> I mean, the rest of the story is I, I kept showing up every day and eventually I fell in love with football. I loved it, played it all through high school. It's a great sport. And in a sense, again, in a much more beautiful, eternal, grand and glorifying to God way, we have these people who are a cloud of witnesses. Witnesses is the word, the Greek word for martyr. It's a legal term. These people who, some were martyred for the faith. They're killed for their faith, but, in, but they're witnesses. They're, they're, they're coming alongside of us to say, you can, you can do it. You can persevere. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what are we to do? Here's the action. Let us, and here's the, here's the, uh, the verb, lay aside. And this is what I'm calling throw it down. Throw down sin. Lay aside sin. And he doesn't just say certain sins. He says every sin, every weight, every encumbrance. Look, we don't need this. You don't need me to define every for you, but just, just to accentuate it. Listen, every means each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. Throw it down in this pursuit of Jesus. Lay it aside. The, the second word that's used only here in this passage is that word for weight. It can also be translated encumbrance. It's this idea that there are things that are in this life that think about, some of you are, are crazy enough to do these competitions through mud where you wear weighted vests. Y'all are awesome, by the way. It's like, man, take that vest off, that weight that is just so heavy upon you. Throw it down, take it off. So you may run more unencumbered towards the Lord. The very next phrase that we translate since, uh, sin which clings so closely. Throw, throw, a, a, throw down, uh, a set aside, lay aside this weight in the sin that so easily entangles, your translation may say. It's another word, Greek word, that's unique here. Sin that so easily entangles. It could be, uh, in, in light of every, it can be either besetting sins, like those big ones that we know. You don't even have to think about it. Like when I, when I, if I were to pose the question to you, hey, what sin or sins is really weighing you down right now? What sin or sins is really entangling you right now? The besetting sins are the ones that you don't have to think about very long. You go, oh, I know. And for some of you, it's, it's, it's the heavy, heavy ones, right? It's the, it's the pornography, the sexual sin that just weighs so heavily on the heart and mind. And you don't, you don't have to think about it. You know, man, I, it's killing me. It's killing me. Part of the church, part of the beauty of this body is that God has designed us to help each other take those weights off when we don't have the strength or the willpower or whatever it may be to do it ourselves. We need people to come alongside of us and say, let me help you with that. You've run so long with that weight on you, you don't even know what it would begin to look like to run without that weight on you. And so let me help you. Others of us, you know, I don't, you know, and you won't tell anybody because it's just so very hidden, but you know it's alcohol. You know it is. What started as social 
and manageable has become more than social and unmanageable. And you know it. And you'd be surprised that people in your life know it too. And it's time to say, okay, I gotta take that off. And throw it down. But, but here's the other thing. So there's besetting sins that you don't have to think about. But then over here, there's what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Sins that are such a part of everyday life that we don't even realize they're happening, but they're weighing us down. They're clinging so closely. We're, we're easily entangled by them. And these are sins like gossip, like jealousy, like covetousness, like lying, like embellishing so much that you realize that you don't even really know what the truth is anymore. But you wanna embellish because it makes the story better so that people like you more. But that's lying. But it's so accepted and it's so respectable. Everybody does it. But, but these are ones that you might have to think a little bit more about. You go, when I ask the question, what are the sins that so easily entangled, that cling so closely in your life? You can point to the besetting ones quickly, but these over here, it's like, man, I need to think about that. And before long, the Holy Spirit shows you, man, there's all kinds of stuff that every single one of us are entangled by that honestly, we just ignore and we say, oh, those are respectable sins but they're weighing us down. They're weighing heavily upon us. And the Holy Spirit within us is just so very gently, but very intentionally saying, time to throw that down. Why? 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 Well, because we're in a race. We're running. We're running towards something significant. And so he says next, so let us run. And that, that Greek phrase is interesting. It's not the only place it's used, but it's interesting. Listen, this word occurs in Greek writings denoting this inference of extreme peril. In other words, we've got a race before us that's really hard. It's difficult. It's hard to walk with Jesus in this world. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And so why would we go into this race that's already difficult in a broken and sinful and fallen world with added weight upon us? Let's throw it off. And yes, part of the Christian life is this seemingly exhausting battle that we can only do through the power of the Spirit and through the community of, of the saints and believers where we throw off the weighted vest of sin and before we know it, it's back on. And then we throw it off again, and then it's back on. And then we throw it off again, and it's back on. And part of Christian uh, 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 growth and maturity is learning how to walk more and more after we've thrown it off before it hops back on. But it's a battle. And he says, look, we're running. Let's run. Let's run this race. Why would you want to run encumbered? I saw a video recently that was hilarious. It was these guys that were trying to determine, like 10 guys trying to, de to determine draft order for their fantasy football league. And the way they were gonna determine who got, to, who got to go first versus last is, have you ever been in the ocean where you're just only knee deep and then you try to run? You ever done this? Am I the only one? Okay, so you're, you're running, and you're, but you're running in, in water up to here. So they were in the ocean and it was hilarious watching these middle-aged men try to run in the ocean knee deep and see who had the fastest time. And these guys are falling all over themselves. And I thought, man, what a picture of how we try to run with Jesus 
in the midst of our sin. It's like, man, get out of the water. Walk, walk up onto shore. It's going to be a lot easier. In the sense of being able to walk with Jesus, the life, life's still going to be hard. But let's run. Let's run this race. And then he says this. Listen. He says, let us run with endurance. I love this definition of what this word means. It's the characteristic of a person who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose. In other words, to run with endurance is to run with steadfast commitment. To not waver to the left and to the right, but to stay focused on the purpose to which God has called us as redeemed sinners. Those who are running with Jesus. Unwavering devotion and commitment. So let us run with endurance the race. Now, Paul is referring, I say Paul, I, I don't know who wrote this. I just, just said Paul, we don't know. I actually don't think it's Paul, but that's for another day. Whoever wrote this is referring to these readers, these first century, century readers would have known this. He's referring to these ancient Panhellenic games that were the precursors to the modern Olympic games. And when people would run in these games back then, they would run naked, unencumbered. Now that's weird for us today, but for them that was normal. It's like, if you're gonna run fast, run naked. Strip down so that you don't have anything slowing you down. And so when he's talking about running in the race, that's what they're picturing. Now, here's another word that's really, really interesting, this word race. This Greek word, this is the only time in the New Testament that it's translated race. It's used five other times in Philippians and 1 Thessalonians and Colossians and then in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And all those other times that it's used is translated conflict, struggle, and fight. Again, he keeps hammering the same point. He says, look, throw it down, throw down the sin that's so, weight, so weighty and easily entangles you and clings so closely and run this hard fight, this race that is a struggle. Run it and run it unencumbered. Listen, the presence of your struggle, we'll talk about this more next week actually because this is where he goes in the passage. The presence of your struggle is evidence of your adoption in Christ. Why? Because Jesus said, in me, you will have many tribulations. But take heart, I've overcome the world. This is, this is why I get so angry, and I hope it's righteous anger. I pray that it is. But, but this Americanized gospel that's been preached some explicitly, some implicitly, that some of us have either bought explicitly or some of us are, are believing it implicitly and we don't even know it. This Americanized gospel that can sometimes be called the prosperity gospel that basically says, come to Jesus and you'll have your best life now. Come to Jesus and you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and everything will be easy and everything will come into order. And I say to that, what Bible are you reading? Because what I read over and over again, from Jesus and from the apostles and from the writers of scripture is that they keep telling us this is gonna be hard. This is gonna be really difficult and life is really hard and difficult for every single person out there but the Christian life is even harder 
Because you're swimming upstream. The current of the culture is going this way and the current of the kingdom is going this way. If you're gonna swim with Jesus, if you're gonna run with Jesus, it's gonna be hard. Struggle, fight, race. So take off sin and run the race. And in the moment that you stand on the practice field of life and go, do I have it? Am I tough enough? The answer is, no, you're not, but Jesus is. You're united to him and you will be with him one day and it'll all be worth it. No, you're not strong enough. No, you're not tough enough. No, you don't have what it takes. No one in this world does, but what's the hope for the believer? We're united to Jesus and he overcame the world. And so through him, you do have what it takes. You do have the ability to endure. You can run the race with endurance. You can take off the sin. You can throw down the weight. You can do it because Christ is in you. And on every day that you are beat to a pulp, think about what's to come. This is what Moses did. How do we do this? Well, look at what Moses said, or what they said about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. In that Hall of Fame of Faith passage, it says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. He didn't know Jesus yet. Jesus hadn't come yet, but he knew there was a promise of one to come. He knew there was a savior who was coming. He believed the promise that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he knew that there would be a day when in the midst of all of the denial of the fleeting pleasures of sin that beckon our hearts and our minds so much that denying that for the reproach of Christ is gonna be worth it. And the reward in heaven is gonna be, we're gonna stand with those witnesses one day and we're gonna go, yes. Every time I threw down the weight of sin, it was worth it. As I stand and bask in the glory of Jesus. He was looking to the reward. So, Naturally, this is where the author of Hebrews goes next. What was he looking to? The reward. Who is the reward? Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's the second imperative in this passage. Look to Jesus. Your translation may say, fix your eyes on Jesus. This is the, uh, what's at play here is the idea of turning your eyes away, the eyes of your heart and even your literal eyes, turning them away from sin and fixating them on Jesus. I love the way one commentary put it, it said this, to look with steadfast mental gaze, to train our hearts and our minds, to turn our gaze away from the things that will never satisfy, to turn our gaze away from the things that sin promises but never delivers, and turn our gaze to the one who always satisfies and who fulfills every promise that he's made. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. There's another phrase that's only used here, perfecter of our faith. It means finisher. Why can we set our eyes on him? Because he did it all. He finished the work, the perfect standard that you and I are required, that we're under the weight and the wrath of the law because God requires perfection to be in relationship with him. We're free from that burden, why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He's our sinless substitution. 
So in him, through faith in him, his sinless record is attributed to us as if it were our own. And we're set free and the burden is lifted. He's the perfecter of our faith. And in him, even though we're not perfect, we are considered, we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ such that we are seen as perfect because we're now covered in Christ. So we fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then watch this phrase, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We establish in verse one that what's set before us Remember the very last phrase of verse one is this race that is what? Set before us. So the race is before us. What was set before him? The cross. So the author of Hebrews is trying to connect some dots for us to say in the same way that Jesus had the cross set before him and he approached it with joy, we are to uh, approach the race that he set before us in the same way with joy. Because who's in us if you're a follower of Jesus? Jesus. His spirit is within you. And so if he can approach the cross with joy, then I can approach this race, this struggle, this fight, this battle that's before me on this side of heaven. I can approach it with joy. Because Christ is in me. Then he says he endured the cross. He endured the cross. So again, we connect some dots. We're to endure the race before us in the same way that he endured the cross before him. So we approach it with joy and then we endure it with what? With bravery and calm. That's what this word literally means. Endure in this context is bravery and calmness. You think about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He, in his humanity, fully divine, fully human, he didn't want to take this cup of wrath from the Father. And he expressed that, but then where did he land? Where did he end up? He ended up in this place of saying, but not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. Bravery, calm in the, in the acceptance of the will of God. This Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for you and for me. And what was the result of that? Well, the next phrase, he despised the shame. This is a reference back to the Garden of Eden. So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is undoing the work of the Garden of Eden. And what was happening in the Garden of Eden? Well, sin enters into the world. And what's one of the very first things that man and woman experience as a result of sin? Shame. Adam and Eve are exposed in their nakedness. They're fully exposed, they're fully known, and because of sin, they're fully ashamed. But watch what happens with Jesus. Those who identify with Jesus by faith, we're fully exposed in our sin. We're fully known by God. We can't hide from him. But instead of being fully shamed, fully ashamed, we're fully accepted. Why? Because Jesus despised the shame of sin on the cross. And now that we are in Christ, if your faith is in him, that means that united to him and his righteousness on your behalf, you and I can walk in an unashamed reality where the shame of sin has no power over us. And then he says this, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The king of the universe finished the work that you and I couldn't do. And then he sat down 
on his rightful throne. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But there's one more thing. There's one more verse. There's one more imperative in these three verses, and it's this. Verse 3, consider Jesus. Yes, look to Jesus, and that's infinitely important, but take the next step. Don't just look to him, as important as that is. Consider him. This is that last Greek word that only shows up here in all the New Testament. And it's this word that is it's getting at, as you look to him, as you're doing that, consider him, meaning think over, ponder, contemplate, analyze, think out thoroughly, weigh, and compare. In other words, this author of Hebrews is saying, put Jesus up against anyone or anything and watch his, his sufficiency at play. Don't, don't, this isn't blind faith. Don't just look to Jesus and go, I don't know anything about him. Study him. Get to know him. Contemplate, analyze, weigh, compare. Sink deep into the person of Jesus and mind the depths of the reality of knowing him. And in every circumstance in life, in every situation in life, and in every sin that tempts you in life, put Jesus up against it. And watch him win the day. Consider Jesus. To what end? Well, he says, consider the hostility that he experienced at the hands of sinners. In other words, whatever you experience, it's nothing Jesus hasn't. And he lives in you, so you can do it. You can endure. But then, to what end? So that you won't be weary and faint-hearted. Is this not the, is this not the aim of all of our discipleship efforts, by the way? What is evangelism and discipleship if it's not to help people throw away sin, look to Jesus, consider him, and see his incomparable worth? That's, that's discipleship. I mean, look, through your process, yes, beautiful, awesome that we do here. And you're going to take away a hundred things from that through your process that we do in discipleship. But if there's one overarching theme, it's this, that at the end of the day, at the end of three years, you would be able to be in this consistent life of reality where you are throwing off sin, you're looking to Jesus, you're considering Jesus, you're not growing weary, you're not growing faint-hearted, and you are every single day of your life seeing the incomparable worth of Christ. That's the goal. That's what we want for every person. It's what we want when we seek to make disciples. I think Paul summed it up really well in Philippians. We know, we know Paul wrote Philippians. He stared at Jesus so much by faith. He stared at him so much that he was able to say this, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Father, would you help us be able to say the same? Would you give us the ability to say that I consider all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Lord, we, uh, 
some of us need to confess that yes, sin entangles us. We all need to confess that, but some of us even need to confess that there's, there's really good things that aren't by nature sinful that we have allowed to become things that cling so closely that they hinder us in our race for you. Our kids even, the pursuit of success and money, the longing to gain a reputation, whatever it may be, things that aren't innately sinful, but we have allowed them to entangle. So as we come to your table, would you make those things known to us? And would you strengthen us, nourish us in these elements such that by your power we can throw those things down, we can look to you and consider you anew, not grow weary or be faint-hearted. To your glory in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.